Uh, if you are in Isaiah chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 2 all the way down through 20. And I'm going to go ahead and read those. I'm going to be reading from the ESV uh, translation of the Bible, but you can follow along in whatever translation you have with you. All right. Isaiah chapter one, uh, beginning with verse two, it says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughters of Zion... Is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat and well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the father, fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come, come now, let us reason together. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, We come before you today uh, just grateful for your word, how it moves and how it works in our lives. But as we are going to see today, that sometimes it's ignored. And so, Lord, we ask that as we open up your word here this morning, Lord, that your spirit might move within each and every one of us in this room. Lord, that we might take to heart your words to Israel and your words to us. Father, we thank you for your love, your care, and your constant mercy, your constant calling us to forgiveness, to repentance, to renewal. 
We thank you, God. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Um, in the 1990s, there was a, a movie that came out called The Truman Show. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um, but in the, the movie, it depicts the life of a man named Truman Burbank. Now, Truman lives in a small town on a small island. And he's got a good job. He's got nice neighbors, friendly townsfolk, and a lifelong best friend. Kind of the picturesque life. But unbeknownst to Truman, none of it is real. The true reality was that he was the star of a reality TV show since the day he was born. And he was completely unaware of it. Since the day of his birth, he lived in a giant TV studio dome surrounded by actors. His co-workers were actors, his neighbors were actors, even his best friend was an actor on this TV show that was running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, the entirety of Truman's life. Now, during the course of the movie, uh, Truman begins to notice things that don't seem to add up. And he begins to discover that things in his world were not as they appeared. In the end, Truman discovers the truth that the whole thing was a facade to entertain all those who were watching 24-7. And the final scene of the show shows him finding the exit to the studio And leaving, walking away from this life that he's known for his entire life, 30-some years. And the TV show comes to an end. That's the whole gist behind the movie. And again, if I I don't know if you've seen it before or not, but the the gist of that movie um, got me thinking when I was reading through Isaiah uh, this week. As I was studying this passage, this movie came to mind. Because if we were to take... Uh, a sort of bird's eye view, or I guess more modern term would be a drone's eye view of Jerusalem during the time of Isaiah, and especially the temple area during the time of Isaiah, we would see a lot of religious activity going on. We would see a multitude of sacrifices with the rams, the bulls, goats, lambs, all well-fed, all good quality animals, just as God had commanded to them to do as payment for their sins. You would smell the burning of incense in worship to God. You would see family units and groups of Israelites sitting sitting down and celebrating the Sabbath and other Jewish holidays that God prescribed. You would see a constant barrage of people in the temple praying to God and singing songs from the book of Psalms. From our drone's eye view, we might come to the conclusion that these people are committed to their God and that their God is very pleased with them and what they're doing. But as we will find out in this passage today, things are not as they seem. And God would not idly stand by and allow what was truly going on to continue. What was truly going on, as we'll see in verses 2 through 8, was God was displeased with Israel because in truth they were living in rebellion against him. And we will find God confronting his people because of their sin. All right, verse 2, God calls on heaven and earth. Uh, Essentially, the cosmos uh, or the universe. Basically, 
basically you almost get the view of a courtroom scene. You know, we have a lot of courtroom TV scenes now. Uh, the most famous is probably Judge Judy or whatever. But th- that's kind of the idea you get when we get to verse 2. When he says, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. You see, this is God bringing his case against Israel to the universe. All right, and so he brings these charges of, against Israel. This nation that he had raised up through Abraham as a light, their intention was to be a light to the nations, right? They were to be his representatives here on earth. Everything uh, they did was to point to God. They were his children raised up to be a chip off the old block or a spitting image of their father. And yet we find in Isaiah that they refused. They turned from God and instead of being a light to the nations around them, They wanted to be like the other nations, lost in the darkness. And as the verse says, they rebelled against God. Uh, Verse number number three gives us this, this illustration that they had less understanding than animals. It describes two of them. It says, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So you have this ox. The ox was like a big, is a big beast, right? It's, it's a big, powerful beast, but it was unusually submissive for, for what its stature was. You know, it knew where, where to get grain. It knew who fed it. All right. The donkey was known as one of the dumbest animals around uh, during that time. And yet God's saying these people are, are worse off than these animals. Uh, the donkey even knows who feeds it, who takes care of it. And it's probably true in your house. If you have pets, Right. Your pets know who to go to for the food. Right. When it's time to eat, they know which which of you to go to. All right. When it's time to go out, if the dog wants to walk, they kind of know who to come and find. Uh, my grandfather told a story of how he was able to go on a hunting trip out west in like Montana or whatever on a on a huge ranch. And to actually get to the hunting spot, you had to ride a horse. And and their instructions to him were, if perchance, you know, this was the summer, but in, in other times of the year, if perchance uh, over the mountains, the snowstorms would come pretty quick. And they're like, if you're out there on the horse um, and the snowstorm comes up and you get discombobulated, they said, just just let the horse lead. The horse will find its way back to the barn. All right. Just go with the horse. The horse, horse knows where its food was. It knew where its home was. These animals know where to go to get what they need. But God says, my people are not like that. My people don't come to me to get what they need. They don't know. They don't understand. All right. In their sin, they had estranged themselves from God. Again, even though we have this bird's eye view of all this um, religious uh, activity going on, God tells us who Israel really was in verse uh, 4. Look at the terms that he uses. He says, They were a sinful nation, laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, corrupt children, who have forsaken and despised God. These are estranged children. Which, if, if, if you're a parent of a child that has kind of gone their own way, as parents, we, we do our best to follow God and raise our children, right? But we're all flawed. Um, and there are times when our children walk away. But I guess you can, we can take some encouragement in that, the fact that God, as Father, every single one of his children has walked away. All but one. All but Jesus. God knows 
what it's like to have a child walk away from you, a child turn away from you. And that's how he is describing his children, his nation of Israel uh, right here in this passage. He says they are estranged children. Far different from the initial picture of what we might think by looking at the exteriors of Israel. Isaiah here in this verse, he uses this title, the Holy One of Israel for God. And we'll find as, as we as you look through the book of Isaiah, you'll find that this is one of Isaiah's favorite terms, one of his favorite names for God. And I think in, in chapter six, we get a glimpse why in chapter six, probably one of the more famous passages of Isaiah, when Isaiah is sharing with us his calling, um, when when God called him to be a prophet, to take his message to Israel, um, Isaiah had this vision of God sitting on his throne in heaven. And there were angels around him and the angels were declaring this um, in Isaiah 6, 3. It says, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of its glory of his glory. And so Isaiah, when he sees God's image, his holiness sitting on his throne and these angels crying, crying out, Isaiah's response is despair. It's conviction of his own unholiness. The light of God's holiness shown how dark his heart, how dark he was. And so 25 times in his book, he uses this title, the Holy One of Israel. And I can't help but wonder if it was in hopes that the Israelites would respond as he did. As the Israelites, as they viewed God's holiness, they would respond in repentance But as of uh, chapter one, verse four, they had despised God instead. And verses five through eight show us that even discipline and suffering had no effect or impact on them. Verse five says, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Parents, you ever feel like you're almost quoting that verse? Like how many times do I have to ground you? All right. How many times do I have to take your phone, take your electronics? All right. How many times until you learn? All right. God is calling out to them. Um, Verse five and six go on to describe a bruised and battered body. And maybe you can imagine the child who's who's learned to ride his bike um, and he refuses to wear his helmet and his pads. Right. So you imagine this child made their own ramp, a jump, whatever. Um, And so they pedal down the hill as fast as they can. They hit that ramp and, and land in the bushes. Right. And now they're all scraped up a little bit. They're bleeding a little bit. And you tell them what? Put your helmet on. Put your pads on. Again, they refuse. All right. They try it again. They hit that ramp. They end up landing, you know, kind of on the sidewalk. And now they got a bump on their head. They got some bruises. All right. Put your helmet on. Put your pads on. Again, they refuse. All right. That's that's kind of the picture that we see when God is calling out to Israel. It's like, how how long do you have to keep beating yourselves up uh, by not following me um, and crashing and burning. And he he describes all these wounds and the the hurts and the sores and the bruises. Uh, That's the picture that we get uh, of how Israel is acting towards God. And verse 7 and 8 describe what has had become the land, what had become of the land that they lived in. Now, it's possible that Isaiah is describing their spiritual condition at the moment. So they might be saying, what are you talking about? We're, we're not all beat up. Our cities are still good. We're thriving. 
But spiritually, as God views them, they are in shambles. And this imagery would eventually merge into reality as foreign invasions would take place in Isaiah's lifetime. During Isaiah's lifetime, during his ministry, foreign nations would invade. All right. They would uh, bring destruction and havoc on the people of Israel. But the bottom line was that they were rebellious in heart. And even discipline and suffering had no effect or impact on their sinful way of life. And worse still, they didn't see it. All right, Isaiah has to explain to them why they are in crisis. They do not comprehend that they have forsaken God, that they've hollowed out their worship, and that they have corrupted their society. Part of the deceptiveness of our sin is that we don't see it. Isaiah will go on to say in chapter 29, verse 13, he says, God says this, he says, And this people, they draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. God says these guys, they know all the words to say. They know the actions. They know the routine. All right. But their hearts are far from me. All right. Their fear of me is the, is the, they consider the fear of me all these rituals that, that they're doing. All right, that's what the, the, the rulers and, and leaders are instructing them to do. As long as you do this, as long as you offer this sacrifice, as long as you do this, 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 this. Here's the ritual stuff. You can go out and live. All right, the sad truth was that the people were unaware of the consequences of their actions and attitudes. They thought that they were good with God, that he should protect them and bless them. The prophet Isaiah had to reveal the reality to them. <clears throat> and so as we come to verses uh, 19 through 15, we, we, God addresses this external religion. Remember at the very beginning we talked about if you, that, that bird's eye view of all the religious activity and rituals going on. All right, first in verses 9 and 10, we see this shocking comparison of the current people of Israel um, especially the leadership to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. 9 and 10 say this. Um, if the Lord of hosts had not left us few survivors, we should be, have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now in our day, if, if somebody was to be called uh, Judas or maybe a Benedict Arnold, all right, we would be, they would be indicating that that person is a traitor, all right? That they use those names as to, for someone who will, who will betray you or change allegiances. All right, I guess in our, in our modern politics, it seems that if we don't like the argument or policies of the other side, they're quick to call them, reaction to call them either like Hitler or Nazis. Uh, these terms insinuate that you are an evil tyrant or an elitist group that looks down on others. All right. These these uh, terms have special meaning in our day because of our past. Well, for the ancient Israelites, Sodom and Gomorrah had special significance uh, because of their past. If you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, it was during the time of Abraham and God was talking to Abraham and he said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their great wickedness. Um, and 
Abraham was talking to God and, and finally got to the point where it's like, hey, if there's 10 righteous people in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, won't you spare the city? And God said, yeah, I'll, I'll spare the city. But in the end, there were no righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so God destroyed them because of their great wickedness. And so for God to compare them to these two cities must have been appalling and shocking to the Israelites. After all, we're, Israel, we're the people of God. Right? We're God's special possession. Uh, we're special to him. Um, they, they have this great temple built in his honor. They were daily sacrificing animals to him and feasting and praying in his name to what they had thought was to his honor. And yet Isaiah tells them of what God really thinks of them and their religious rituals. You guys are no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, God is sick of the empty worship. In verses 11 through 15, we see what God really thinks of Israel's religious activity. In verse 11 and 12, he addresses their sacrifices. They were bringing a multitude of healthy, well-fed rams, bulls, lambs, goats, etc. to the temple in sacrifice to God. And yet God regarded this as if it was just a stampede or a trampling or religious chaos in his house. In other words, if we were to put it in musical terms, if you've ever seen a symphony, you know, when you get there early, all the all the instrumentalist people are kind of tuning up. If you get there early and you don't know what's going on, you're like, this doesn't sound right because everybody's kind of tuning their instruments. They're all doing their own thing. All right. But then once the symphony starts playing, everything meshes together. And that's what their worship was supposed to look like when everything meshes together. And yeah, God's saying, you know, what it really sounds like right now is, is everybody's doing their own thing. Everybody's screeching their own instrument. All right. Everybody is stampeding. They're, they're, they're uh, trampling my courts. That's all I see when I see you guys offering all these animals as sacrifice. Uh, to God, it was religious havoc. In verse 13 and 14, he addresses the festivals and special occasions that were meant to be an act of praise and worship to God. Isaiah speaks of the new moon festival and the Sabbath and the calling of convocations. So if you remember back earlier in Pastor Todd's sermon on our series on David, back before David was king, back when after he had killed Goliath, and Saul had become jealous of him. And there was an episode where David is talking with Jonathan, Saul's son, his best friend. And he says, hey, your dad's out to kill me. He doesn't, you know, for some reason, I, he thinks I did something. He's out to get me. Jonathan's like, no, he's not. He's, you're fine. You're okay. If something was wrong, he would tell me. And so they, they devised this plan that there was a new moon festival coming up and David would not be there when he should be there with Saul and Jonathan and all the others. All right. And so this new moon festival comes up and Saul is there and he says, tells Jonathan, hey, where's David? Uh, why isn't David here? And Jonathan uh, makes up this excuse. Hey, he has to go back and celebrate with his family in Bethlehem. Um, and Saul got angry and threw the spear at Jonathan. And that's when Jonathan knew, okay, something is up here. But anyway, that was during that new moon festival that, 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 um, that, that this took place. Um, it was a required, or it was a, it was a feast that God initiated in celebration to what he does and who he is. All right. And he also talks about the Sabbaths, which of course were the weekly, um, times of rest that God had commanded. Um, and it also says 
uses the term calling of convocations, which were other times of formal gatherings to worship God. You know, that was like the, okay, we're officially doing a potluck. All right, we're officially doing a, a prayer time, a prayer meeting, you know, where we're all gathering together to worship God. All of these things, God is saying, I am disgusted with. All right, even though you guys keep doing it, I am disgusted with them because they were all an outward show. God says that these gatherings have become a burden to him and he is weary of bearing them. Imagine that. They were thinking, oh man, we're, we're good with God. We're doing this for God. And God at the same time is like, I'm tired of this. It's not real. It's empty. All this religious activity going on in Israel and yet their very acts of worship were a burden and detestable to the very God they claimed to be worshiping. Fortunately for Israel... God offered a solution. God offers a solution to Israel's empty worship problem. God is not content to leave them in their current situation or to destroy them as their sin demands. Instead, he offers a solution to Israel's rebellious and empty worship, and that is forgiveness. God demands that they purge themselves from their evil way. Verses 16 and 17. Um, Begins, verse 16 begins with the command to wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. This comes on the heels of the end of verse 15, where God tells them that in their prayers, even though they're holding up their hands, their hands are full of blood. This is this actually has some irony in it, because during um, not only along with all the sacrifice uh, sacrifices and their their worships, worship that God had commanded. Um, there is a lot of ritual washing involved in that. So truth be told, the Israelites physically were never, probably never more clean than when they were offering their offerings to God, when they were there to worship God. And yet God says, you know what? Physically, you might be clean, but spiritually you are not. In God's eyes, they were filthy because of their sin. And so God calls on them to cleanse themselves. Isaiah goes on to list some of the corruption and sins that plague the Israelites' daily lives. Their evil deeds included injustice, oppression, not caring for the poor and the needy, all which God had commanded, and they did all that or lacked doing all that while claiming to love and worship God. In verse 18 through 20, we see God offers to forgive their sin. <clears throat> if Israel was willing to repent, to turn from their wicked ways, their injustice, their impression, their oppression, their neglect, their abuse of the widows and orphans, their sins would be forgiven. They had followed God's ceremonial law. All right. So the Bible, we, we kind of get different types of laws that God gives. The ceremonial law is the sacrifices and the offerings and things like that. But they had neglected God's or ignored God's moral law. If the great greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, then Israel should have been just as concerned for those laws as they were for the ceremonial. But instead, their ceremonial became inauthentic because they ignored God's other commands. They had become completely external in how they lived for God. 
But verse 18, probably one of the more well-known verses in Isaiah says, Come now. This is God speaking. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Remember, the chapter opened up like this, this heavenly courtroom scene where God is calling on the cosmos uh, to witness uh, the crimes of his children. The evidence is clear. All right. It's clear that they are guilty. The verdict is they are guilty of this, this accusation that God brings against them. But the divine judge, also their father, offers a choice. He says repentance and forgiveness or judgment and destruction. God holds back in mercy what they deserve and offers out in grace what they do not. An opportunity for their sins to be forgiven, for their fellowship restored, for their worship to once again be acceptable to him. So how is it that this all connects with us? I mean, this was 700 years before Jesus came along. So this is like 2,700 years ago that this happened. What does it mean to us today? Well, let me uh, start that with uh, an illustration uh, from World War II, since it's Dad's Day. All right, I, I decided to pull an illustration from World War II. Uh, from World War II, we have many stories of groups and units of soldiers and their heroic efforts and valiant fighting. But there is a lesser-known military unit that was very effective, even though they never stormed an enemy stronghold or, ever, or even fired a single shot. This unit's artillery couldn't fire, its tanks couldn't move, and its members were more adept at wielding paintbrushes and gu- than guns. Yet this top-secret unit of 1,100 American artists, designers, and sound engineers, officially known as the Ghost Army, helped to win World War II by staging elaborate ruses that fooled the forces of Nazi Germany about the location and size of Allied forces. They would employ inflatable decoys. That's what these, these pictures actually. They look like real tanks and trucks. Um, here's, a, here's another one. All right, that's an inflatable tank. All right, they employed inflatable decoys, fake radio chatter, and loudspeakers that blared sound effects. The ghost army could simulate a force 30 times its size as, it's, as it operated as close as a quarter mile from the front line. They were involved in the preparation of D-Day and also during the Battle of the Bulge, each time deceiving the German army as to the amount of military force and the location of attacks. The Ghost Army pulled off its most elaborate hoax in March of 1945. As the 9th Army prepared to make the dangerous crossing of the Rhine River into Germany, the Ghost Army positioned itself 10 miles south of the intended landing spot to redirect German attention. The ruse worked. While the Nazis attacked the Ghost Army, the 9th Army crossed the Rhine with little resistance. Now, deception can be used to fool an enemy, and having the outward appearance can effectively deceive and distract an opponent. But God sees through all outward appearances and sees the heart. He saw through the religious rituals that Israel was doing and knew the rebellion and the sin inside. And believe it or not, for us, that is a good thing. Why is that? 
because our sin will destroy us. And God is not content to leave us to it. God is not content to leave us in our sin. And for us, whether it's sin or whether it's sorrow, the God of love, grace, and mercy, the holy God, desires us to be wholly satisfied in him, which is what we were created for. So whether like Israel, we have, have formed this outer shell and, and our worship is empty while we live our own, with our own sins in our lives, or if it's from sorrow. Maybe you've, you're coming in here this week and it's been a rough week or a rough month. You know, that loved one is not doing well. Um, but, you know, the health, the health report did not come back well. The job search is not going well. Life is hitting you hard. And yet we can come in here and, and kind of, you know, first person says, hey, how's it going? It's great, you know. Whether, whether, whether it's sin or sorrow, whether it's the, the sin we struggle with or the suffering in our life, God sees through it all, and that's a good thing because he wants to be there for you. He wants to take care, for, care of it. If it's sin, he wants to root it out. He wants to help you root it out. If it's, if it's sorrow, he wants to comfort you. And so God is reaching out his hand saying, come now. Come now to me for rest and renewal. Our great God can see through the external and has a perfect view of the heart. He knows what's going on. He knows what needs to happen. And like the father of the prodigal son, he is waiting. We can too easily slide into a way of life that retains the outward form of faithfulness while the heart wanders. And so the question for us is, as the father is waiting, as the father is calling us, the question is for you, will you go to him? Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning.